I'm lead pastor Noel Petras, and welcome to the Exeter Valley Church podcast. Our church plant started in 2021 with the goal of seeing God's kingdom extended in our hometown. If you're curious about Jesus, looking for a home in the family of God, or feel called to be a part of a kingdom expansion in Exeter, California, we'd love to have you join us Sundays at 9.30 a.m. in the Veterans Memorial Building at 324 North Cahuilla Avenue. For more information, head on over to www.exetervalleychurch.com or find us on social media. Thanks for listening. So in uh, in 2012, um, I received what I would call a prophetic word. I was coaching high school football and uh, we were serving at Radiant Church loving life there, but I was loving my job as a coach as well. And, and, and some of you are, have heard parts of this story. So I apologize if this is, if you're like, I've heard it all, all over before, but anyways, I, I think it's helpful today and not all of you have heard it. So, uh, anyways, uh, after lunch, uh, one day we were up at a retreat and after lunch one day, our pastor came over and we were chatting and he said, you know, no, I just think, I think someday God is going to call you out of coaching on the field and into coaching in the church. And uh, that started a series or a period, a season of discernment, because while I had never considered giving my professional life to leading a church like this, there was some life on those words that day. I just, there was zip on them, if you know what I mean. And I remember laying in bed with Megan that night at the camp, staring at the fan, you know, like we couldn't go to sleep. We were just talking about uh, that word. And um, so we began a, a season of discernment. Lord, are you saying this? Lord, what, you know, how can we act in obedience with this? Um, Lord, is this, does this weigh uh, accurately with what you've been saying to us through your word? All the things, trying to decipher if this really was God's word. And uh, in 2013, um, after some clarity, I think we really started to feel like there was some, there was some zip behind this. Uh, the Lord, it seemed, was on this. And we were hearing um, from him, but also from the community around us, that um, this seemed to be something that they could see happening. And so in 2013, uh, Meg and I uh, were hanging out with uh, Pastor Travis and Tiffany Aiklin, and uh, they told us, hey, you know, we're, we're a plant, a church plant that wants to see other churches planted. And, and we think you and, and some few other leaders can do what we did. And so in 2013, we started talking about not only giving our lives to vocational ministry, but to uh, seeing a new church established. And, and Exeter quickly became a place that God put on our hearts. Meg was coming out here anyways to ride and to run in the hills. My, my grandparents were uh, buried in the seminary, uh, seminary, the cemetery. You gotta be careful with that word. There's a big difference between a cemetery and a seminary. Although some people, some pastors go to die when they go to seminary, but anyways, I digress. Uh, so anyways, we felt this call uh, to Exeter. There was something in our hearts that was alive to see something happen, to be a part of something here in Exeter. And in 2014, in faith, not with the whole picture put together, but in 2014, in faith, we moved to Exeter. We were able to buy a house here, moved our family here. And uh, that, that, uh, that step of faith coincided with a real season of waiting 
and humbling and difficulty. It often felt painful and it felt like suffering at times. I know that in that season I was experiencing as I stepped out of the boat, shall we say, I was experiencing a death to my own kingdom, the plans that I had had for my life, the, maybe the positions that I held, the titles that I held. And it was also just, it was a tough season for our marriage. The toughest season in, in our marriage was during those years that followed. And, um, and then our family was, was making the transition from school, living in one place, moving to another place. I was like applying for jobs and positions that I just didn't get. And I remember thinking like, I've never not gotten a job that I wanted. And uh, I was passed over for certain titles. It just, whether they were big or small, it just seemed like that was not what the Lord had for me. I was, I was in line for titles that never came and I was stepping out, but the wind and the waves were strong and I was losing faith. And this period lasted for a number of years, 2014 to 2018 or so. And it, it led to a season of discouragement, disappointment, frustration. And, uh, I came to like the apex of this moment in time. And I was like, you know, this isn't working out the way that I thought it would. We thought we had moved because of obedience. We thought that the Lord was leading us into this, but maybe that's, maybe we heard him wrong, or maybe we were supposed to step out, but now he's got something else for us. I was starting to uh, get back into the idea of making coaching my full vocational aim. And uh, anyways, I, I remember in this moment, praying with like telling Megan, like, man, I was so discouraged. Uh, my career vocation was so important to me and feeling aimless, just like really hurt, not having a title. If I'm honest, not having a position, something to kind of aim my life towards and wrap my identity around was really discouraging to me. And I remember in, in like a moment of my deepest discouragement and despair telling Megan, like, I, I don't know about this. Like, are you sure that God really said these things? And uh, Megan, whose faith never wavered, at least in this way, um, because I believe God had given her strength. Uh, she, he'd given her a, a huge gift of faith for this. She got mad at me one night when I asked her and she was like, it doesn't matter what I think. You know, you, you need to know it. And so you need to give the Lord no rest until you've heard from him again. And so uh, that uh, my wife's chiding uh, started uh, a, a number of weeks of real dedicated prayer on my part. Like, Lord, I, I just, I need to hear from you again. I, I feel like I did hear from you, but I feel like you've gone distant. This is not working out the way that I thought it would. And so it led to a period of probably about six to eight weeks of pretty intense, regular prayer. Lord, like, what do you want from my life? And am I doing it? I want to, I want to do what you've called me to do. And that, that, uh, that all coincided with in February of 2018, an experience that I had the most profound encounter I've ever had with God's voice. And we are, I mean, I'm, I'm a charismatic, meaning I believe that God still speaks to his people. Um, but I have not had a ton of charismatic experiences, you know, and so I was holding on to the belief that God speaks all the while. He mostly felt quiet. I don't know if anyone can relate to that, but that's been my experience, you know. And so but in this moment, I heard God really confirm profoundly um, the, the call uh, on my life to leave coaching and my career, my vocational call to coaching and step into um, a, a position in the church. And, you know, um, I felt excitement about this confirmation, but it, it did not lead to any more speed with things becoming a reality. If you're tracking with the timeline, you know, we're celebrating two years 
as a church in August of the year 2023. So if you're doing the math here, there were still uh, years of waiting ahead for me. And um, I mean, I even, you know, in, in that next season, 2018, July of 2018, uh, my dad died of cancer. Um, a year and a half later, um, my mom died of cancer as COVID was just beginning. It was spring, April of 2020 that my mom uh, died. And all the while I was learning that I had a real achievement bent. I don't know if any of you are familiar with the Enneagram, but um, I'm a type three on the Enneagram, which is a performer, achiever. Enneagram is like a personality profile, basically. Um, and so I, I was learning that, uh, you know, I was kind of wired to achieve and to perform. And sometimes uh, that means that when you, when you don't measure up or you don't get the job, if you can't be the best, it's really discouraging. I remember like crying with Megan because I didn't feel like I could be the best. It sounds really childish and foolish, you know, in, in some ways now, but this is like the way that I was wired and I was learning that there was more to life than achieving. I was learning to answer the question, what happens if I can't be the best? What happens if I'm passed over for this title or that position? Will I be content in following Jesus day by day? Anyways, it was, um, you know, uh, there was this one key moment in that process uh, in February of 2020 where we had been in, we had been in process even, I was in process to be named an elder at Radiant Church in Visalia. That had been a really long process even of itself. And there was a pause put on my process um, during February of 2020. And, you know, I, it could have been devastating, but honestly, what I had learned through suffering, I believe, <laughs> up until that point, what, uh, instructed me that I could trust the Lord, even in a discouraging process. And I remember um, really sensing the invitation to trust the Lord with all my heart and lean not on my own understanding, but in all my ways. Acknowledge him and trust him to direct my paths. And so I, I had this sense of peace and, and that represented like a shift in the way that I related to things. Because prior to that point, not getting a position, not getting a title was really discouraging and despairing to my soul. So here I am uh, in, in February 2020. I've been passed over again. My mom dies later that year in April. And I, it had become my prayer, like, Lord, I just, I want to be obedient. I know that I've wrapped up my own personal ambition in the call that you've placed on my life, but I don't want it to be about me. In fact, it, that's really not what it's about. This isn't the way I would have drawn up my life, but I want to be obedient. So if you're calling me to stay and to wait, to be content with what you've given me, I want to be content. But if you're calling me to go, I want to go. Not because of my ambition, but because of obedience. And so I had gotten to this place where I could say that prayer like, Lord, all right, am I doing it? And that was, that was really the prayer. Lord, am I doing it? Am I walking in obedience with, with what you've called me to do? And it was, in, it was about June of 2020 that I started to notice that the Lord was whispering the words go uh, when I would pray that prayer. Lord, am I doing it? Am I doing what you've asked me to do? And, and finally, uh, we got away. We were in uh, Oregon, Sun River, Oregon, which is basically heaven. So it's no wonder that I heard from the Lord there. Um, but we were... Uh, we had some time away, right? Some space just from the normal hustle and bustle. And I, I remember asking the Lord, like, I feel like you're saying go, like green light, go. Like, what do you mean? 
green light go. I think I had been expecting that he would say, wait, 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 because that's what he had been saying. And I was trying to get, I was trying to be okay with the waiting, you know? And in that moment, I just, I felt like he, what he, what he said was just do what's on your heart to do. No, it's time. Go build a team. And so anyways, I, I'm telling this story now. And why do I tell this story? Some of you have heard it several times um, by now. And I mean, this message is certainly not about me, <clears throat> but what I did, but what I just wanted to do, I guess, was as your pastor kind of confess that spiritual ambition is part of my story. What we're hearing uh, the disciples go through, you know, Jesus, can I sit at your right hand or your left hand? Jesus, will you give me a title if I'm faithful to you? I think I've asked those same questions. And so I think that there's something for sure uh, for me this morning in this message, but I think there would be something for any of us that who, uh, you know, in our zeal to follow him have asked at times, well, what's in it for me? Will there be a position for me? And what if there's not? So let's talk about some context here in this story. So this story actually starts with a prelude. You'll notice there's this little funky um, section between the sections. And this section doesn't seem to fit. It's It's this idea of Jesus calling himself the son of man and him talking about how he's he's on a path to death suffering death and then eventual resurrection <clears throat> it's interesting because all three synoptic uh, synoptic sorry that's a hard word to say all three synoptic gospels Matthew Mark and Luke they're called synoptic gospels because they're they carry a very similar style and they have a, a very similar message the gospel of John is very different in literary style. If you, if you read that, you'll notice it's a very different gospel and it, it tells different stories. But Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John have a lot of overlap. So they call them the synoptic gospels. Well, all three of these synoptic gospels deliver this passion prediction of Jesus three separate times. So if you've been here uh, with us long enough, you'll know this is the third time that Jesus has told his disciples, hey, by the way, I'm going to suffer and die. Like, I know that you're worshiping me. I know that you're coming to follow me. You're seeing uh, the, the spirit of God work powerfully in my life. But just so you know, I'm on my way to die. And they are literally now on their way to Jerusalem, where Jesus will be crucified at the hands of the Romans. And so all three Synoptic Gospels uh, list this story three times. Why is that important? Because in the Bible, Numbers are important. And maybe you know this, right? Like, what's the number of perfection in the Bible? Seven, right? And so how many tribes were there in Israel? Twelve. How many disciples? Twelve. So numbers matter in the Bible, right? I'm, I'm probably speaking to people mostly who understand if you didn't know, now you know. Okay. They actually, um, the reason that numbers are so prevalent in the Bible is because the Jewish people were a people of numbers. And there's actually a word um, for this Jewish tradition of numerology. It's called gematria, gematria, gematria. Um, and it's the idea that some, some numbers are more important than others, and the Jewish writers would have used numbers to, to connote importance, to try and get across a certain message. So the number three is known to Bible scholars as the emphatic number. So why would all these gospel writers, all three of them, tell this story three times, right? And the number three connotes completeness. It connotes stability, the emphatic number. You'll, you'll remember that Jesus was tempted how many times in the desert? Three times. 
Uh, how many times did Peter deny Jesus? Three times, right? How many days did Jesus spend in the tomb? Three days. And uh, how many days did Noah, or I'm sorry, Jonah, uh, spend in the belly of the fish? So you've seen the number three before in scripture. So this number three is really important. So that's one of the reasons that this passion prediction um, is tucked here in between these two stories, one about spiritual pride and the next about spiritual ambition. And, uh, you know, I believe also that Matthew is wanting to communicate something really important about Jesus's way. Uh, you know, these disciples have just been tempted with spiritual pride, puffed up with spiritual pride. So Jesus told a story about how the last become first in the kingdom of heaven. <clears throat> They've been tempted with the kind of pride that hoards the grace of God for oneself with, with a jealousy that envies anyone else's reception of it. And now in this story, we're going to see the disciples tempted with spiritual ambition. And I believe that Jesus is reminding them by telling them about his eventual suffering and death, that the road ahead is not a road of glory without suffering, but instead a road of suffering that leads to glory. It, it should instruct those of us with gifts, those of us with leadership call on our life to be warned. Leadership in the people of God is evidently a frightening thing. I think what Jesus is saying is like, hey, lest you get puffed up with pride, you guys, take a look what's going to happen to me. This is the way. Sorry, I had to say that. Mando reference really quickly. So here we are. Uh, this passion prediction uh, interlude is, has shown us with great detail how Jesus' lastness leads him into firstness. His lastness leads him into firstness. And so it will be with us as his disciples. You see, feeling superior was the leader's problem in the parable of the vineyard workers. How can you pay them the same as you paid us? We worked twice as long, and it was really hot outside. But seeking support, superiority over others is the disciples' temptation in this passage. See, the two great demons for a Christian leader are pride and ambition. I won't ask you to name names, but anybody know a Christian leader who succumbed to pride and or ambition? It happens way too often. You know, and ambition can be a drive that is difficult to tame. I think like it was in my story, the drive to be obedient to the Lord can quickly become a drive for one's own glory, position, title. And I think we're reminded in this story today that as disciples, we can never be too sure whether we're driven by good ambition or evil ambition. John Calvin says it this way. He says, this story is a clear mirror of human vanity. It teaches that ambition is often entwined in a right and godly zeal. A mix between godly ambition and humility. No doubt about it, I think this text, this, this passage, this little interlude that precedes the stories that we've just read about the vineyard worker and the one we're studying today is intentional. I think Jesus is showing his disciples that in his inverted, his upside down kingdom, the way up is down, down into the valley of despair and suffering and death. 
and up into resurrection life. This is the, the part of the story that no one really seems to get in any of the three instances. How does Jesus end his passion prediction? The Son of Man will rise on the third day. This is the good news that gets lost in all the tough news about suffering and death and destruction, etc. We go down into the valley of despair, but we rise up through that death, through going down into resurrection life. And one of the things that encourages me as, as a preacher, uh, when I don't know if my audience is getting it, is to remember that even Jesus's audience didn't seem to always get it, did they? <laughs> Perhaps a better way to say it is, is that uh, these disciples were, were haplessly bouncing back and forth between getting it and missing the point entirely. And today's story is a story of how two of Jesus' closest disciples, James and John, and their mother, who makes the ill-fated request, seem to miss the point entirely. But if we're honest as disciples, we're often bouncing back and forth. One day full of faith, I surrender all to you, Lord. The next day, chasing after ambition, chasing after materials, chasing our vices, whatever it might be. And so the story moves on to a mother's request. Uh, in the gospel of Mark, it's not the mother who makes the request. It's James and John who make the request. But in this story, uh, Matthew was probably really honest about how mothers are or, or can be. This is also maybe something. This should have been a Mother's Day sermon. Mothers, quit trying to get your son's positions. With Jesus. Anyways, I, I, I'm, I'm getting off track. So the next part of our story is about the request Mother Zebedee uh, made. <clears throat> Verse 20, then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want? He asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. I mean, there's three things that I notice about this request of the mother. The first is that there's, there's many ways to avoid Jesus. There's many ways to avoid Jesus. You can avoid Jesus not just through debauchery. That's like the obvious way to avoid Jesus, right? Through a lifestyle of sin, whatever it is, alcohol, pornography, sexual sin, greed, lust, right? There's many ways to avoid Jesus, but but some of the most dangerous ways to avoid Jesus are the ones that cover this avoidance with theological explanations. In this case, grasping for the spiritual rewards. She must be thinking, Jesus, I just, I just heard you talk about the rewards that those who have given up everything for you and followed you. I've heard it, I just heard about the rewards. That was two sermons ago. So she's grasping at these rewards in some of the worst ways to avoid Jesus, have theological explanations. It's a great reminder that we must come to Jesus' teaching again and again, week after week. We've got to sit underneath Jesus' teaching. We need his frequent redirection, if we're honest. That should both discourage you and encourage you, right? We need his frequent redirection. We, like these disciples, can easily miss the point. We're actually really difficult. Just when you think that these disciples have gotten it, they're clamoring for power and position. Oh, wait, that's not godly. 
it's pretty obvious for us all to see. And I think the gospels were written in part to remind us of this continual condition that we live with. We listen, I would even just say as a church, could we be the kind of church who just realizes with humility that we're, we've never really actually arrived like on this side of heaven, we're always going to be like these disciples bouncing back and forth. And hopefully as we grow in maturity, we follow Jesus longer. We'll get a little closer and closer, but we, we need to have humility when we come to the scriptures. We don't have it all right. We don't have it all figured out. We're actually a lot like these disciples. The second thing I see in, in this request is that there's, there's many promises in scripture that seem to, to offer us whatever we ask in prayer, right? Ask, seek, knock. There's many times in scripture where we're commanded to, you know, with the faith of a mustard seed, pray big prayers. But here we find that evidently there's a limitation to these requests. Mother Zebedee was making a request. And, and evidently, if our requests are self-serving or presumptuous, they'll be answered no. The third thing that we see here in this story, this, is, this should be really instructive. Take heed. What was the mother's posture? It says she came to Jesus, and what did she do? She kneeled. Doesn't that look like the right posture? Outwardly, that seems like the right posture. Kneeling as an act of worship. She obviously recognized Jesus' divinity. But a request reveals her too high view of herself and her own needs and her son's needs. Look, we don't worship Christ rightly, even if we're kneeling, when we have our own agenda at the forefront. It's a good warning for us, isn't it? That we can come with the right posture on the outside, and yet still on the inside, something's not quite right. And so this woman comes to Jesus, she's, she's kneeling, but she's got her agenda at the forefront. It's a good reminder that he must increase and we must decrease. The way up in the kingdom of God is down, not just on our knees physically, but on our knees on the insides, having hearts of worship, not just postures of worship. She obviously does not understand that God's kingdom, though it does come with rewards, is not a kingdom of power and of pomp. Passages like this where disciples uh, look bad are, are really helpful, I think. Why would, if this was all made up, why would these guys pass on a story that makes them look so bad? It's a great reminder. The gospels make the disciples look terrible. They're half-hearted creatures. Can't be a story that's made up. They go back and forth between getting it and not getting it. And if we're honest, as I've said, so do we. See, Peter, James, and John, they're Jesus' inner circle. These are like the closest people to Jesus. These aren't even like the other 10. These are like the best disciples, James and John, but they're far from perfect. And, and as we see here, they're often not very spiritually superior at all, are they? Asking silly questions like, who's going to sit at your right and who's going to sit at your left in eternity, Jesus? So even the inner, inner circle doesn't seem to get it. Again, we should be humble. We should realize that we too are like these disciples bouncing back and forth from not getting it and missing it entirely. We've never arrived. We've always got growing to do. So the mother of James and John, she's, um, she's asked a silly question. She's exposed herself and the world now for perpetuity is, is wondering how silly this mother is. It's the only story I think I can remember of Mother Zebedee. 
Be careful how you act. You might have your one story of silliness get recorded for all time. Anyway, she's exposed herself. And so how does this rabbi Jesus respond? So let's take a look at verse 22 for the rabbi's response, for Jesus's response. He says, you don't know what you are asking. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? So if prayer is, is just a request, we, we ought to think about for what and in what spirit we pray. Jesus says, oh, you want to be seated next to me. Well, can you drink this, the cup that I'm going to drink? Now, this is obviously like a word picture, right? Drinking the cup. We know that Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before his death, he used the phrase, you know, take this cup from me, if it be possible. He asked the Lord out. He knew. So the cup represents his suffering the death that he's going to die. So he's saying, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup? Can you take on the same suffering, the same death that I'm going to drink? So evidently not all prayers are intelligent or pure. It says in James 4, 3, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. Jesus like, oh, you want to sit at my right and left hand in eternity. Well, can you drink the cup? that I'm about to drink. I'm not sure if that's what they had in mind. And I think, I think though the answer to Jesus response is like maybe one of the most hilarious things. This is like the typical male thing to say, we can, you know, <laughs> Oh, we can do it. We got it. We'll drink the cup. Jesus, no problem. We can drink your cup. And, uh, I don't know. It's just, Again, it's just one of those ways in which the disciples are so human, you know, like, oh, we, yeah, we can, they're excited. We can drink your cup, Jesus. Never mind, just like a few chapters later, and we'll get to this. Chapter 26, Jesus calls his disciples, his inner circle, these same three, come pray with me in the garden, right? This is where he's like sweating, or he's like sweating blood because he's so like stressed out, evidently, about what's happening. And, and what are they doing in the garden? Asleep. Right. The guy, yeah, we can drink the cup. Jesus, we're right there with you. Yes. Sleeping in the garden. Right. And then in Matthew chapter 28, we see all their fear and their doubt after the resurrection. These same guys, he told them three times, mind you, that he was going to suffer and die. And then he was going to be raised to new life. And that they still had fear and doubt after the resurrection. So yeah, these, we got it, Jesus. We can do it. You wonder what Jesus is thinking. But if we're honest, like the disciples, we both can and cannot live the Christian life. And this should, be, this, should, this should both encourage us, like when we falter, this should encourage us. The disciples also faltered. The closest people to Jesus also faltered. But it should also discourage our pride when we do hit the mark. Knowing that, just hang around for a few chapters and an embarrassing moment is ahead. Remember the Peter who, uh, who both confessed Jesus as the Christ and denied him three times. The Peter who stepped out of the boat in faith and then sank when he saw the wind and the waves. This is the life of a disciple bouncing back and forth between faith and unfaith. So Jesus goes on in verse 23. <laughs> he doesn't argue with them. He says, you will indeed drink my cup. Notice the language here. It's, it's not so much that they can or cannot, but that they will indeed drink it. As disciples, we do not decide to drink or not to drink. We decide to follow or not follow. The choice to follow is a choice to drink the same cup that Jesus drank. Sobering words. 
Jesus is saying, look, if you want a position of power in the kingdom of heaven, you have to drink the cup of suffering, even unto death. And uh, he was right about these disciples, was he not? James was martyred. You can read about that in Acts 12 too. And uh, John was uh, exiled to the island of Patmos, which was a martyrdom of sorts. Yeah, the story of John's crazy. Did you know John, they tried to burn him in a, a pot of burning oil and he wouldn't burn. So they just threw their hands up in the air. And they're like, ah, we'll send you off to this island, Patmos. And that's where the book of Revelation uh, was produced. So that's, that's John's story. So they were both martyrs. So Jesus was right. He called it. He called his shot on them. They both did follow him into suffering. Um, Freddie B says it this way. It says, he says that they wanted to be the first and most outstanding leaders, but instead they would become the first and most outstanding martyrs. Who's up for this? Anyone else want to drink the same cup that Jesus drank from? And we like James and John, we may not experience like literal death, but I believe all Christians experience a martyrdom of some kind. As we die to ourselves, we put ourselves at the mercy of the culture around us at times. So all Christians, I'm here to give you the good news today that your martyrdom is coming if you choose to follow him. So Jesus goes on to say that to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. See, Jesus was fully submitted to the will of the father. This is one of the interesting things to think about and discuss. And theologians could get really nerdy about this. We could get really nerdy about this. Like in what ways was Jesus fully divine and yet fully human? You know, those, that's like a complicated thing to understand. But what we do know is that Jesus in his humanity, submitted himself to the Father's will. It says in Philippians 2, uh, Paul writes, that, that we're to have the same mindset of Christ, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient even unto death, even death on a cross. And therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every other name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Jesus does not deny that positions exist, only that they are not his to give. He submits himself to the will of his father. Well, guys, it's not my position to give you a position. That's up to my father. So, okay, uh, Noel, you're saying we, we get it. Uh, this mother was asking a selfish question on behalf of her spiritually ambitious sons. And if we're honest, we can be just like the Zebedees. So uh, we need to avoid this sort of ambition, right? How do we avoid ambition? That's hopefully the question that you're asking in your heart. How do we avoid the same ambition that these guys fell prey to? Well, I'm glad you asked. Thank you for asking. So let's move on to the final part of this story where we find our application for today. An antidote to ambition, if you will. 
So it says in verse 24, when the 10 heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. I love these little like human parts of the story because I'd be ticked off too, right? If I was one of the 12 and I see two of them peel off to go try and get their glory, they're like, dude, what's up? You know, and so it says, that's what indignant means. They said, dude, what's up? That's what indignant means in the Greek I've heard. Anyways, uh, <clears throat> you, you could probably imagine where you might be upset too if you were one of the other disciples, right? Like, wait, wait, you, wait, wait a minute. We turned our back and you guys are trying to get the right and left hand of God. Like, what is going on here? You're trying to snake the pole position. Anyways, uh, I was wondering, like, are they upset at the Zebedees or maybe they're just mad that they didn't ask first, right? Have you ever, have you ever like found yourself in that position where you're like, you're kind of, like, you shouldn't have done that, but no, I should have thought of doing that first. That's what should have really happened. Anyway, so they're indignant with the two brothers. Verse 25, Jesus called them together. Jesus was a, he was a great coach. You know, things are getting chaotic. We've lost our way a little bit, made a couple errors. So Jesus takes a visit to the mound, right? Bring it in, bring it in guys. This is Jesus, coach Jesus right here. He's like coach Belichick, but better. Uh, anyways, um, he says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Jesus is stating the terms of his kingdom. You've, you've seen how the world uses leadership to create superiority and how to, and how it uses leadership to lord things over subjects. Not so with you, not in this house. This isn't the kind of team that we are. Not here. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus' first antidote to the world's superiority is suppression. Suppression of superiority. Worldly leadership is domineering. It's authoritarian. It comes with a pride and power that puffs up. But according to Jesus, the model for Christian leadership is not so. Remember, the way up is down. In an age of celebrity Christianity, high-tech evangelism and worship and widespread abuses of church power for self-glory, or even in using questionable techniques in the name of attracting more people to the gospel. Can you not see how we may have missed the boat a time or two? Who are we bringing glory to? Jesus or to ourselves? This is the, this is the entrapment for all Christian leaders. And again, like you don't have to go far. I could list the name of five people right now that have fallen off. There's like a really popular podcast on one just a couple of years ago. The lure of personal power is always working. But Jesus says, this must not be the case with you. The Christian leader must not seek superiority, but suppress it. It's not a last man standing game of king of the hill. That's not how we're going to do this. The way up is down into the school of suffering, not the school of superiority. So Jesus says, this must not be the case with you. Don't do it the way the world does it. Instead, you should serve before being served. He goes on to say in verse 26, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. The desire to be great uh, can be a good desire, right? Instead, whoever wants to be great, evidently the desire to be great in the kingdom of heaven is not altogether by itself bad. 
Evidently, the desire to be great can be a good desire, but it can also be a bad desire. And Jesus doesn't chastise desire. He redirects desire. He channels desire. It's not that rank doesn't exist, but gaining rank involves denying it. This is the upside down way of Jesus. If you want to gain your life, you've got to lose your life. You've got to be willing to let go. And it may also be, I would say, the key to happiness. Our world is looking for happiness. Happiness is, excuse me, personal happiness is the predominant virtue of the culture we live in. You do you. You do whatever makes you happy. And who am I to say? Whatever makes you happy. But the path up in the way of Christ is a path down into servitude. So Jesus, uh, he doesn't stop here at servitude as he often does. He takes it one step deeper. I like both love and hate this about Jesus. He's so demanding, so grace-filled and yet so demanding. Dang, he doesn't stop there. First, you must look to serve and not to be served, but there's more. We've got to live sacrificially. Verse 28, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So seriously does Jesus take the way we work that he uses his death to motivate it. His doctrine of vocation is built on the atonement itself. There's this theologian named Horatius Bonaire. Horatius Bonaire. I didn't say that out loud before I, before I got here this morning. Anyways, uh, HB says it this way. He who did nothing wrong was condemned for everything so that we who have done everything wrong may be condemned for nothing. This is the atoning work of Jesus. The, the fact that we, as we sing, Jesus paid it all. So how far must we be willing to go into this selfless serving? And here's what I would tell you. You only have to go as far as Jesus went, not a step further. You only have to go as far as Jesus went. Matthew 16, 25, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. If you're trying to earn a position, if you're striving to earn a title, if you're making your whole life about this life, you will lose the life that you seek to keep. But Jesus says, whoever loses their life for me will find it. This leads me to the quote that I blew last Sunday or the Sunday before. Do you remember that? I I lost my mind. I literally lost my mind in the middle of my sermon. Jim Elliott said this, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain that which he cannot lose. This is the upside down way of Jesus' kingdom. There is a position. There are rewards, but the way up in the kingdom of God is down. Can you drink the cup? That's the question Jesus poses us. So, Noel, is that it? That's your sermon today. You're you're calling us to die like Jesus died. Yes, that's my sermon. No. But yes, I am. Yes, I am. I'm calling you to let go of what you think you can hold on to. 
I'm calling you to let go of the life that you think is truly life in order that you might actually have the life you were created to live. You got to die to yourself. I've got to die to myself. I've got to let go of my ambitions, my desire for glory, my desire for a title, for a position. Why would I want to do that? Why would I want to do that? You'd want to do that for others, for us. You would want to do that for us because as you do it, we'll do it. We'll rub off on each other. What if we had a community of people, a family who served one another first, who went down even into suffering, who gave until it hurt? Because in God's kingdom, the way up is down. What if we had a community that really embraced that? So others, we need you to live in this way. This does not work if we don't live this way. Jason was praying before uh, service and he prayed that people would come in and see something different about the way that we loved each other. This is the thing that's different. Christian people live like this. This is what makes us different. Christians seek to serve, not to be served. But you know who else needs you to live this way? You need yourself to live this way because he's no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain what you could never, ever, 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 never, ever lose. Life with God in eternity is what's on the line. Hey, we're so glad you joined us, but don't forget to stay connected, either through our website, our social media, or the Church Center app. Or you know what? Better yet, come join us in person on a Sunday morning. See you soon.